Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, how frustrated have you been trying to cancel an online subscription? It seems the whole system is set up to make it really easy to sign up and oh so difficult to get out. But we meet someone who's dug into the tactics used and tells us how we can better navigate them. It's time for our monthly A Little More True Crime segment, and we welcome podcast producer, host, writer, and author Catherine Fogarty to talk about her new book called Someone You Know, a dozen Canadian true crime stories from across the country and beyond featuring cases well-known and some less so, united by that sobering reality that with murder, more often than not, the killer is someone close to the victim, someone they trust and often love. Emojis may seem like a very informal way of communicating, but could a thumbs-up emoji actually signal that you've agreed to the terms of a binding contract? That's what a judge in Saskatchewan has ruled. Why? And what could the broader implications be? But first, imagine renting out your condo, only to discover the unit is quickly wound up on a short-term rental site, such as Airbnb, without your permission and against your condo's rules. Well, that's what one Toronto woman says happened to her. Trying to fix the problem was no small feat. Now she's filed a big lawsuit, including against the City of Toronto and Airbnb, to try to get those rules tightened up. And on foot, a BC man has spent eight years traveling around the globe without once using motorized transport, not even an elevator. How did he do it? He'll tell us. But first up tonight, let's head to Toronto, an experience that goes well beyond frustrating. Imagine renting your property only to discover that your tenant has allegedly turned around and put your place on a short-term rental site like Airbnb. Well, that is exactly what one Toronto woman says happened to her. That all it's all began just a little more than a year ago now when Alison Ariskina agreed to a one-year lease to rent out her studio condo in downtown Toronto beginning on July 1st, 2022. But then within weeks, the boyfriend of the tenant had gotten from the city of Toronto, a short-term rental registration for the unit. And he wasn't even on the lease as well, but was apparently living there. And then within weeks, the unit was up on Airbnb. It stayed there, apparently, from July 22nd to April 2nd of this year. This is all according to a lawsuit that's been filed. Although the agreement allegedly forbid it and the condo corporation itself the strata, so to speak, refuses renting out residential units in the building for less than a year. Now again, Riskina is suing her former tenant, the boyfriend, the city of Toronto, and Airbnb. The lawsuit seeks $1.6 million in damage from the four defendants for financial losses, mental anguish, and other harms. Now again, these allegations haven't been proven in court. The defendants, as far as we know, haven't filed a statement of defense yet, but it is quite the warning tale. And Alison Riskina joins us now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Hi, yes, no problem. Tell me a bit about the condo. I mean, you decided to rent it out. I know there's a lot of demands for rentals in Toronto right now, and it's always a bit difficult trying to pick the right tenant, right? What did you do? Yeah, great question. Um, You are correct. We are definitely in a housing crisis. Our vacancy is less than 1%, and um, there's a a big push to put have investors and people put units out there for for long-term rent to be able to give houses to people that that need them. Um, so typically when, when a tenant, tenant is going to be applying for a condo, they provide a rental application where they give references, personal references. They provide 
um, their credit report, things like that. And um, then you're able to, to hopefully vet the tenant um, well and have them not be you know, somebody running a scam. <laughs> right. So tell me about your situation. Uh, did you have any doubts at all about, about uh, this person who you rented to? No, I didn't. And, um, you know, that that's kind of the thing. When, when there's somebody that's going to uh, try and pull the wool over your eyes, normally they know exactly what they're doing. So um, references can easily be fake. So can job letters. Um, in this case, ID as well. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I had no doubts because it was carried off very professionally. Right. When did you start to figure out that something might be amiss here? Um, so everything was going fine until uh, my security team at the condo sent me a notice of suspected Airbnbs. Um, so it was actually our, our security team that, that had some suspicions, and they forwarded that to the property manager who forwarded that to me um, with a note saying, hey, you may not even be aware, but it looks like there's a suspected Airbnb in your unit. And um, it kind of unfolded from there. When I brought it up with the tenant, um, it was denied. And then, um, I mean, technically, I guess it wasn't her doing it. It was her boyfriend, who I didn't even know existed, um, who was doing it. So, yeah, it uh, was a bit of a detective work for sure. Right. Uh, and just so listeners understand, there are rules in lots of places. Depends where they are, obviously. Some are grandfathered in and out. But what the rules in your condo are, no rentals below a year. Is that right? That's correct. So not only did the, the lease I have with the tenant prohibit short-term rentals, um, the Ontario standard lease that they also signed prohibits subleasing without the landlord's permission. And my condo rules also prohibit short-term rentals. So uh, three documents at least, uh, two of them contractual, one of them legal, all say no. So how long, when does the security team, so the lease is signed, it starts on July the 1st of last year. When do you, when do you get the notice from the security team that something might, be, something might be going on in your unit? In February of 2023. Right, so months and months and months later. Yeah, yeah. The setup of the condo is such that uh, it is a ground floor unit where someone doesn't need to actually pass by the security to enter it. So it was uh, the perfect unit for this to be carried off uh, undetected. So when you went off to do your detective work, what did you find? So I had to, uh, like, you know, the the city would not give me the name of the individual with a short-term rental license. Um, so I had to file with a, a freedom of information request with the, with the government. And when I received that, I had the name of the individual that was doing the short-term rentals. Um, I tried to get it taken down from the city, and um, that's a very long process. They, they will only suspend the license, and they do 30 days for them to respond back and then the the city gets another 10 days to respond back and it's very drawn out. Um, And Airbnb themselves, but I contacted them saying, you know, like this is nefarious, (laughs) nefarious use of this unit. It's, It's not allowed. I mean, they're risking every single guest, every single booking that comes in for an illegal Airbnb 
And uh, they just said, we're a third-party platform. We don't have anything to do with this. If this sounds like you should be contacting the tenant directly. And I'm like, this this person, I don't even know who they are who's doing this. Right. So, I, I suppose well, you knew who your yeah. tenant was, right? I mean, you could, did you ever find the place on Airbnb? Did you Did you go look to see, did you find it? Oh, yeah, yeah. We reported the listing, and then it just came up under a new heading. And then it, so it came up and down off Airbnb five times. Wow. And what, and you can, I mean, this took a while. I mean, I think what this paints is, is this notion that it's very difficult in your situation once this is done to try and undo it. Right. I mean, that's, that's what it boiled down to for you. Yeah. And I think it's, it's very financially motivated because the city is able to make money off of every license they issue and a 6% tax on all the short term rentals that, um, that happen. And Airbnb, of course, makes money on their hosting platform and any of the bookings made through the site. So they're they're really in no way motivated to try and stop this. Meanwhile, it's it's completely against the rules, completely illegal. And who's at risk is is me, who is not even involved because I can be fined by the condo board. Um, you know, like uh, my insurance got canceled, which is terrible because this was a non-prohibited use of the suite. So, um, yeah, it was, I, I ended up with a whole bunch of ramifications only for just trying to provide housing to somebody in our city. Right. What happened when you confronted your tenant directly? I mean, clearly it was her name on the lease, right? So what, what happened when you confronted them? They just denied it over and over, and then um, that's it. They never admitted to it, not even one time. How did it wrap up finally? I mean, what happened? Uh, what happened in the? What was the outcome of it? I mean, prior to the lawsuit, obviously, we're, we've arrived at the lawsuit, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. But, uh, mm-hmm. what, how did it come to an end? We're, we're only a year later, really. Now the lease would have just come to an end, I suspect. But uh, yeah. what happened finally? So it it ended up going to the landlord and tenant board and um, just given the wait times of our our landlord tenant board is months and months. Um, So I I had to have a paralegal um, who specializes in landlord tenant board issues assist me and he organized a settlement with with that individual that was named on the lease. A settlement. So so you, you essentially had to find a way to get them out of the lease. Correct. Right. Allison Ruskina is with us this half hour. We're talking about a cautionary tale surrounding renting. Uh, now, this is not ha- something that happens all the time, uh, but Allison rented a place, a studio apartment in downtown Toronto about a year ago, July 1st, 2022, and then quickly sort of, well, quickly, months and months later, found out that the place was in fact being sublet or used as an Airbnb on Airbnb, which of course contravened both the tenant agreements she had with the tenant, as well as the agreements that uh, governing rentals within the building itself. What it sort of paints out is the difficulties that you have to try and undo that once it's done. Um, Allison, tell me about this about this lawsuit. That's an awful lot of money. How did you come up with one point six million? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I actually didn't. Um, <laughs> so the way it works is that for for every category, they sue for the the maximum. Um, so it, it's it's not really. Um, I, I mean, I guess it's, right. it's made made for the lawyers for to determine what they feel like is appropriate or what they can prove. Um, but that that's not a number that I came up with. I can say that, yeah. <laughs> right. Have, have you heard back at all from uh, from your former tenant and the boyfriend and uh, and those and those folks? No, they're um, actually no. taking quite a few steps 
to make themselves uncontactable. So they've either blocked email addresses or, or deleted them, same with phone numbers. Um, attempts at service have not been successful. So, um, yeah, they, uh, I think they know that they're um, in the wrong and they're trying to, I, this is my, my guess, but trying to avoid right. uh, contact. Yeah. So listeners know you, you don't own like, you know, 400 of these. This is your place, right? This is your, your little spot. Yeah, this is my one and only property. Um, the only one I've ever owned. And it's, it's very near and dear to my heart because it was my, uh, my, my first and only condo. And my, my mom came and helped me paint it. And they helped me with the furnishings that were listed on Airbnb and uh yeah, it's, right. uh, it's you know your your most valuable asset that you have as as a, a person. So, um, so I guess the, exactly. in many ways, yeah, this is a cautionary tale, right? What would you like other people to know? I mean, I mean, this is clearly one of those people will find seams. And I won't not let's not talk about this case individually, but often these are you know people take advantage of of gaps, and there's clearly a gap here, right? Absolutely, and. And what I really want to raise awareness about, too, is how I hope that this this lawsuit causes something to change. Because the city cannot be issuing these licenses without doing any verification checks, um, without verifying the legality of the license, without I, I, I verifying the identity of the people. If, if the people even are associated with the property, if the condo even allows Airbnb, um, I, it doesn't make sense that they're issuing licenses. If you're doing a driver's license, you have to pass a driver's test. So if you're doing a short-term rental license, you should have to pass some degree of duty of care or due diligence to make sure that you are, in fact, permitted to be operating a short-term rental. And Airbnb, the same thing. Like They, they need to change. Like How many guests right now are renting Airbnbs that are illegal? Who, who knows? You know, you come from a different country or here on a trip and you get to your Airbnb and little do you know that you're participating in criminal activity. Like that's, that's terrible that they're allowing that to be propagated on their platform. So right. I'm sure. I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure your place checked all the boxes in terms of, of just how it was set up. Right. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was I, I gather it was, it was as hard. How many times was it led? How many people stayed in your place? Um, there's at least 30 reviews. So um, that would be indicative. But looking at the calendar of how they had it um, on Airbnb, it looked pretty booked up for the foreseeable future. So it's uh, it's a great little condo. I'm sure it was very popular. Right. So in your mind, and again, this hasn't been proven, but uh, in court at least, but in your mind, at least, this was the plan all along, like to move in and within two weeks it was up on Airbnb and and that was that. Correct. And um, as as far as we can tell, um, again, this is unproven, but um, they have many units. So we, we, we believe that they have, um, as, as far as our evidence is pointing us right now, there's indication, strong indication that they have at least five or six other units where they're doing the same thing. And um, having this story out there I've been contacted by other people where they're saying yeah like I I rented to this person they did the same thing Um, like now we're stuck in litigation or trying to get them out through the landlord and tenant boards of various provinces 
So um, this isn't a, a one-and-done kind of thing for, for these people. And um, so, I mean, however, like even then, at, at the end of the chain, if you want to stop something like this from happening in the city, there's uh, bigger players that we can try and stop it from a top-down approach like the city with the, uh, with the Airbnb platform as well. Well, Allison, we'll be following along. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you for your interest and uh, wish us luck. <laughs> you know those images we use in text messages, smiley faces and so on and on social media? They may seem like a very modern and informal way to communicate, but are they? As they become recognized as a way of an expressing an opinion or a mood or even an affirmation, remember that one, affirmation, uh, that is something the legal, legal world is now having to contend with and figure out. Take this case from Saskatchewan. A farmer from Swift Current named Chris Actor had been ordered to pay more than eight, has been ordered to pay more than $82,000 for failing to uphold his end of a contract that required him to deliver 86 tons of flax for $17 a bushel, right? The deal was concluded in March of 2021 when, according to court documents, the grain buyer uh, texted actor a picture of a contract to deliver the flax that November with the message, quote, please confirm flax contract. An actor responded with, you may have guessed this by now, a thumbs up emoji, a thumbs up emoji. Well, according to reports, come November, the flax was not delivered. Prices for the crop had really increased by then. Now, the buyer said they had done business this way before. The seller argued the emoji was only to say, the thumbs up, was only to say he'd received the text message, not that he'd agreed to the terms of the contract. Well, this wound up in court, and that's where the Honorable Mr. Justice Timothy Keene of the province's Court of King's Bench in Saskatchewan gave the thumbs down to that line of defense, finding instead that the emoji did indeed meet signature requirements. So why is that? And what impact could that have more broadly? What should you know next time you throw an emoji in there thinking, ah, it's just an emoji? Joining me now with more on this is Elizabeth Curley, a law professor in the master's program with York University's Osgoode Law School in Toronto. Elizabeth, thank you. My pleasure. So th this is one of those real eye-catching ones, but maybe just the legal context of the case, because it seems like a relatively basic thing to figure out, but but a complex one, ultimately. What did the judge have to decide here? Well, the judge had to decide whether Farmer Brown and Sam, the supplier, had a contract or not. So he had several ways to go about that. He could have tried to determine if they were what we say at Edom, whether their minds were in the same place uh, with regard to the contract over some bushels of flax. Or uh, he could have and did ultimately look at what a reasonable person at a distance, looking at all of the context, would decide. That's ultimately what he did, although he's not the average reasonable person, of course. He's a member, an esteemed member of the bench. But anyway, the whole thing was, it was Farmer Brown, I call him Farmer Brown, was Farmer Brown trying to wiggle out of this contract? Because in close reading, there seems to be a huge discrepancy between the price at the time of offer, which was about $17 a bushel Canadian, and the price in November at the point of delivery, which was uh, about $41 a bushel. Right. 
I mean, I guess the, the really interesting part for the layperson here is the idea that that a thumbs up emoji would 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 equate a, a binding a contract, right? That you would agree yeah. to this to these terms simply by sending a thumbs up emoji. It's also very modern, right? Um, but I, I, I guess it was is what would come into what would the judge be looking at in terms of factors to decide whether or not a thumbs up emoji would suffice? Well, first of all, he would look to see if there was a history of similar deals between these two parties. And there was, there were a number of deals and they seemed to communicate by texting rather than phone or paper. So that was a a piece of evidence that was very important because this was not a, a first venture into emoji land at all. The second thing he would look up, who was the last one to communicate and it seems that the last one to communicate was uh, Farmer Brown. I, I, you know, excuse me for calling him that. Well, I, I think, or, or yeah, or the, or the, or the uh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 who he is, right? But the it's emoji man, yeah, the thumbs yes, up guy, right. yeah, 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 that guy. So yeah, who you know, who was the very last to communicate? And if there was, so there was no pickup on that. But was there a need for that? So that's the second thing he would look at, and then he would look at, and he did. Is is a thumbs up emoji a communication that is acceptable within the legal context of a contract? And that's where most people's ears perked up with this case, because no, of course it's not. You know, we have there are a few cases, but I would doubt that uh, most people reading the news would be aware that emoji have been used. A single emoji without text has reached the courts and there's been a determination that, in fact, there is a communication of a a commitment or an idea there. So the other important factor that isn't discussed much in the last couple of days is that the buyer took a photograph of a contract that he drew up. He took a photo on his phone and he sent that to the farmer, Yeah, you know, and said, please comment. So there were a lot of facts that the judge could hang his hat on when it comes to determining that there was a contract. You know, it's a bit scary. As you say, this is all new. And if you, if people now will stop and think, oh, my gosh, I, I mean, I send emoji all the time. Does that mean I'm committing to us to this and to that? And the answer is maybe. Be careful. Right. Yeah, be careful. I mean, I think <laughs> yeah. yes, that's the lesson to be learned here. I guess we could call him the respondent. That'd be the right, the right term yes, for, yes. For, 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 for the person who, who provided the thumbs up. But but yes. it's important, I think, because when you read the headlines, it simply sounds like, oh, he sent a thumbs up to something and all of a sudden it was legally binding. Whereas in this mm-hmm. case, you're saying, in fact, there was the judge would have gone out to look at precedent as well as the context of this particular exchange to see whether or not it met the threshold of what any reasonable person could see as being an agreement. Yes. And also in his mind is uh, whether or not either of the parties was trying to jig the deal, like trying to get out of the deal or trying to impose a deal that really hadn't been made. So that's there as well for the judge to consider. And uh, as I mentioned, the different differences in price uh, when in the two, you know, the two different time periods when the contract was entered, started at the closing, and there was quite a price differential as well. So he, the, the judge would be very aware of that as well. Right. But there's always concern when we, when a judge takes a step further in, in establishing precedent himself, that, um, you know, it'll be opening doors to similar or poor decisions, you know, of, of a similar nature. So, um, this is the first, what we call a court of first instance. 
This isn't the Supreme Court of Canada. It will influence courts at that level, first instance courts, first time trial, um, maybe all over the, you know, the, the common law world. Uh, so it'll have quite an influence, but it can be appealed, you know. And I was going to say, will it stand? Appeal. That's the other. That's the other million dollar question here, I guess. You know, or or sixty four six dollars a bushel question is, will it stand? Right. Yes, and um, it'll be interesting. What do you think? Well, I I, I, don't, I mean, I think he probably has. Depending, I mean. Now that you put it all into context, I think there's probably good reason for the judge to have thought, and I'm no legal expert, but a good reason to have thought that this was, and if there were precedent between that relationship, you would think mm-hmm. that there was good reason for the judge to think that this was an indication of acceptance, right? The thumbs up yes. was more than just, you know, you don't actually have to sign on the dotted line. This was, in fact, saying, I agree to the terms. Yes. But you're right. It opens quite the door. It does. And I've, you know, I've had so many people say to me in the last couple of days, well, give us another example where a non-signature would satisfy. And uh, even in the judgment itself, I went back and found that he referred to uh, crosses on, on contracts, written contracts, initials, pseudonyms, printed names and rubber stamps. So, and I'm sure at one point, even just a seal, you know, not just, but a, a wax seal with an impression on it instead of a signature as well. So uh, it, to right. me, he's, he's just taking the, the notion of communication, uh, i.e. digital speech now, to the next level. And he does say we are in a new communication era and we have to recognize that there is new technology and there are new methods of communicating. There certainly are. Elizabeth Gurley is with us, a law professor in the master's program at York University's Osgoode Hall Law School. We're talking about this great, this case out of Saskatchewan where a judge essentially said that an emoji, a thumbs up emoji can amount to a contractual agreement and ordered a farmer to pay more than $82,000 for not delivering product to a grain buyer after responding to a text message with a thumbs up image. Uh, This is set, this set has set a precedent, as Elizabeth was mentioning. Uh, there is a lot of context behind this. It's not the first time these two had done business. There'd been a significant price increase between the time that he had allegedly, or at least according to the ruling, had agreed to this and then was due to deliver. So there was a whole bunch of stuff going on in the background. But I think for a lot of us, the idea is, wow, you know, I text emojis all the time. Is this a binding? Can I agree to something that's legally binding by just tapping something on my phone? And the answer would seem to be, in this case, yes, Elizabeth Curley is a law professor in the master's program at York University's Osgoode Hall Law School. Uh, we're talking about uh, a farmer in Saskatchewan who's been ordered to pay $82,000 uh, for not for basically not complying with a contract that a judge found that he'd agreed to by sending a thumbs-up emoji. It's gotten a lot of coverage. So what do you think the broader implications of this are? Because I think part of the issue here, and you pointed them out earlier, is that the precedents, such as an X or a stamp, all involve you and the printed page, right? You're staring at something. It is the contract itself. Whereas this was sort of a photograph of a contract and you send a thumbs up. And I think because you're right, you mentioned it earlier, we do that so casually and we think of it as being such non-formal forms of communication that we don't see it as being something like assigning a contract, right? We don't think of it that way. Mm, but you know, Ben, it's creeping forward. It's creeping into our lives. For example, how often do you just click to agree to something when you're buying uh, you know, goods True on enough. it? Yes, huh? yeah. Or, 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 let, or let the computer do your signature for you. It's not your Absolutely. signature. It's just more, it's easier and more legible, right? 
That's true in my case. Absolutely. So we're not, uh, this is a, almost a baby step in this respect. Now there is, there are two cases um, that are similar, not in Canada, but one was in Australia a few years ago. And it was a case that is kind of complicated on the facts. And it was but it involved an emoji with a with which is a yellow bar we call a call it a Bart face because it's yellow and therefore non-controversial in time in terms of race. But it was a face with a zipper mouth. I don't know if you've seen that. Yes, of course. It's sort of yeah, like keep quiet. <laughs> right. So if you stop and think about that and you are thinking in sort of a rogue mind type of perception, which I do in my uh, role as a you know, criminal lawyer and criminal prof, you would think that this is something that is threatening, harassing, bad news. You know, it's not this little emoji is not cute anymore. You know, it's not harmless, like so many of them are. And that was a case where the subject of a text that had that zipper mouth emoji sued for defamation because she felt that her professional reputation was on the line. So I won't, I'll intrigue you, but not tell you anymore. That case, I believe is called Houda, H-O-U-D-A. And uh, if you're intrigued by that, then just look it up. Go have a look. I guess this is a vivid reminder, Elizabeth, that the law is a living thing. I know this gets into a lot of trouble when we talk about constitutional interpretation in the states and so on, but the law evolves. The law looks at how we evolve and evolves alongside with us. Absolutely. And the judge in this case, Justice Keene said, an emoji is an action in electronic form. So I thought about that coming up to this interview, an action in electronic form. So it isn't anymore just that an emoji is emoting or um, clarifying a text, or in some cases, actually obfuscating text, making it more obscure. But in this case, it's an action. It is confirming a contract, I think is what he was saying. So that's a lesson to us, even in haste. Well, don't. Don't emoji in haste. Don't emoji when you want to vent. Don't have a, you know, a bottle of champagne and then emoji, send out emoji, because you could get yourself in trouble. Yeah. Really. Do you have any advice? I mean, I, I was thinking about, you know, you're, you're sort of in negotiations with a landlord about renting a place and they say, well, you know, are we agreed? And you send a thumbs up. That could be taken as sort of, I mean, it's it's more complicated than that. I know with tenancy, but there are different areas where you should really kind of realize that an emoji is in fact, in some senses can be looked at as being an agreement by you to the terms being offered to you. Yes. Well, Ben, you'd make a very good lawyer just in that respect when, by raising that issue, because in the Israeli case that I referred to, it was all about a couple wanting to purchase um, a condominium in Israel. And they sent a stream of emoji and no text, I don't think, to the, to the owner, to the vendor. And the emoji can, um, included a bottle of champagne, a squirrel, there's actually been books, not books, but articles written on the squirrel emoji in this particular case. Really? Okay. But we wow. don't really know what it means, you know, and uh, uh, women dancing and all sorts of stuff. And what the judge said was that this couple was held responsible. They were tied to a contract and he hung his hat on the idea that there was reliance and I, it was there was reliance by the 
by the vendor who took it off the market, thinking that this couple would buy it to his detriment, right? So I think we can think the same thing in the case of this order of flax between these two uh, individuals in Saskatoon, there was reliance. And that's maybe a new, not new, but it's a factor that might influence the case more and more, that when you use an emoji and you're signifying a certain uh, action and that is picked up by the other side, they're relying on you. They're relying on what you've done and what you've said. Right. Communication comes in many, many forms. Elizabeth Curley, thank you so much for, uh, for your insight on this, for clearing this up. Fascinating stuff. My pleasure. Crimes and those who commit them is really the story of human behavior, right? And and deviation from the norms of, of normal behavior, of human behavior. And when it comes to murder, more often than not, even though we focus a lot on strangers committing murders, more often than not, the victim knows their killer. They can be people closest to them, people they trust, people they love. And that's the crux of a new book by podcast producer, host, and writer Catherine Fogarty called Someone You Know. The title says it all. It delves into 12 Canadian true crime stories that are divided into four sections, from fatal friendships, family ties that bind, in the name of love, until death do us part. That last one uh, as well, pretty self-explanatory. Some of the cases will be well-known to you, such as the murder of Canadian actor Phil Hartman, shot and killed by his wife in their California home back in 1998, or the very public 1985 murder in Toronto of 23-year-old Nancy Eaton, the great-great-granddaughter of Timothy Eaton of the Eaton Stores fame, uh, by a friend that she had known for years. And others you may not know as well, including the 1963 murder of widow Minnie Ford by her 17-year-old son Wayne, who's already appeared in Fogarty's first book about the deadly 1971 riot at the Kingston Penitentiary called Murder on the Inside. And the case of Lucille Miller, a Winnipeg-born woman convicted of the 1964 murder of her dentist husband in a plot to collect his life insurance. These stories involve Canadians. They took place across this country from Halifax to Toronto to Hamilton and Vancouver and beyond to places such as Hollywood and other parts of Southern California. There are many motives that come to light through the dozen cases, greed, jealousy, betrayal, and often underlying it all, usually something we would describe as being far more sinister. But the tie that binds is that each of these cases involves a killer taking the life of someone very close to them, or at least known to them, a place where family, friendship, and love can, in fact, be the kiss of death. Joining me now is Catherine Fogarty. Her new book is called Someone You Know, an unforgettable collection of Canadian true crime stories. Catherine, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I, we're, we're always, you know, you're right. When it comes to random attacks and, 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 you know, serial killers and so on, we're often very focused on those. But uh, as you point mm-hmm. out, more often than not, murders committed by someone familiar. Why did you decide that that was the place to sort of unite these tales? Well, I, I think just, you know, through the, the many stories that I've done, I'm, I'm working on number 65, uh, story number 65 for the podcast right now. So I just started seeing, obviously, you know, what was in front of me, which was that many of these stories had this common theme. So so that's why I decided that uh, this was an important um, theme to, to put together, for sure. 
Right. And, and of course, there are many, many cases from which you could have chosen. Um, and you've, mm-hmm. you've, you've chosen cases that some were instantly familiar when I read through them. Some were not. Mm-hmm. Some I'd never heard of. Uh, how did you set about trying to find the 12 that would work? Well, I actually had more to, t- to tell you. The I, well, indeed, I, uh, I suspected that. Yeah, yeah. I, had to, yeah. I had 16, but we, we had to we had to hit a, a word count for the book. So uh, so there, there could be volume two uh, coming out. But um, you know what? All the stories that I do, uh, I've personally just, you know, I've found, I've researched. And, and when you're doing this kind of work, when you're delving into these these very tragic and uh, horrific stories, you know, some of them just, just stick with you uh, more than more than others. Uh, I can't really explain that, um, but some do. So when I when I went back over some of the stories, uh, I, you know, I, I picked out the ones that, as I said, had really had uh, an impact on me personally. Right. I mean, it's interesting because some of them, again, I, you know, the Phil Hartman case, I knew well. Some of the mm-hmm. more recent ones I remembered. Uh, let's start in Vancouver, because this is an interesting one, as much in the way that the killer was eventually brought to justice uh, as the crime itself. Tell me a bit about Gladys Wakabayashi. Yes, that was that was a really interesting story. And honestly, one I had never heard of because I live in Toronto. So I hadn't heard about this story. Um, but when when I did, I was fascinated by it because... Uh, the police had, you know, um, I mean, it was it was fairly obvious, I think, at, at the beginning of uh, of the crime, who had committed it. And and again, you hear about these stories quite often, where the police have uh, a, a main suspect, but they just don't have enough evidence uh, to make an arrest. Um, so they, you know, years went by before they right. were able to to set up a, a specific sting. Um, to to, to capture this killer, yeah. What ha- what happened? Who was Gladys Wakabayashi? Because I, I gather she there's a few in here that you know she was mm-hmm. the daughter of a Taiwanese billionaire. There was certainly the, mm-hmm. you know there was the great 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 granddaughter of Timothy Eaton. There's some big names in the in this book. Uh, I hadn't heard of Gladys, but clearly she was from a very influential family in Taiwan. But she lived in Vancouver and was widowed. Right? Is that was that or she was divorced rather? Yeah, she was divorced. She was a very quiet, unassuming uh, woman. You know, she taught music to to students, but she was the daughter uh, of of a Taiwanese billionaire. Um, but again, that that had nothing to do with her murder. Uh, unfortunately, Gladys, um, you know, had a, a secret, which was a secret affair, and um, that secret affair with the husband of a very good friend uh, ended up getting her killed. Right. And and at this point, you mentioned it earlier, people knew who they had an idea who may have committed it because someone obviously there was an affair going on. So there was motive there. But who was Jean Ann James? Jean Ann James, again, was, uh, you know, a, a suburban mom. Um, you know, you wouldn't you would notice her if you walked by her on the street. She loved gardening, according to her friends and loved animals. Uh, she was a woman in, in her mid 50s at this time. Uh, but you know, she had she had a different side to her that nobody had uh, ever really seen, and she found out that uh, her good friend was potentially having an affair with her husband, um, and uh, she wasn't going to um, tolerate that. So she used her 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 close friendship with Gladys um, to, to you know to to disarm Gladys and you know Gladys of course was completely unaware that by letting this good friend of hers into her home 
that that she would end up dead. Right. And and but this was not a case. Uh, this happened back in 1992. But it was years. It was years later that anything what happened? What happened in the early days? They simply couldn't prove it, you said. Yeah, the, the, you know, one of the only key clues that they had, which, again, is a very interesting clue when you think about a murder scene, is that uh, Gladys had been murdered in her in her bedroom, her master bedroom. And in the bathroom of that master bedroom, they found a, a woman's shoe print in blood. So they knew right away that, that a woman had been there in a high-heeled shoe. And as I said, that's a very unique clue to find at a crime scene. And then, of course, they, they uncovered, you know, the affair and, and different things. But, but again, they, they, they really had nothing concrete um, to, to be able to arrest this woman. Right. And Jean Ann James, of course, throughout this time, uh, protested her innocence, right? Of course, of course. And life went on. I mean, I think it was, you know, gosh, it was like close to, I think, 15 years before, uh, you know, things came back around. Because, of course, in the, in the time where many of these cases have, um, have taken place, you know, uh, murders would happen. Um, and then, of course, they would go, go cold. But in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, various um, police forces across North America started creating these cold case units. So they were going back over many of these files. And, of course, anything where they potentially had any sort of DNA, they would, they would pull out. So this was one that was brought back out. And they said, you know what, we, we need to fresh eyes on this and we need to take another run at this, at this case. For sure, and right. they knew what they needed to do, but it was it was going to be a, a, a very big and expensive endeavor. Catherine Fogarty is with us this hour. Her new book is called Someone You Know, an unforgettable collection of Canadian true crime stories, a dozen of them all about about people who've been murdered by someone close to them, either a friend or a spouse or just someone they trusted. We've been talking about the case of Gladys Wakabayashi, who was murdered back in 1992 in Vancouver. Police believe they knew who had committed the crime. She'd been having an affair with a friend, uh, the husband of a couple they knew. She was divorced at this point, and they always suspected the wife as of having been the killer but they couldn't prove it until they set up a very elaborate uh trap to catch Jean Ann James um tell me Catherine what exactly it was a Mr. Big thing but what exactly mm-hmm. did, did they do and it worked which is I guess yeah. surprising yeah so the Mr. Big thing is a, a controversial um you know undercover operation that the RCMP started, I think, around back in 207, um, give or take. And um, what, what, you know, what the Mr. Big Sting does is it creates basically a, an alternate universe uh, for this person who they believe is, has committed a crime, and they create an entire different reality where they will bring this person into a um, a fake crime family and, and start to sort of amping up um, the, the level of, of trust within this family. And in order to gain this trust within this crime family, and of course, you know, become part of it and make money, et cetera, you know, the, the person has to prove themselves through various, uh, various crimes. So they'll start out with, you know, just something really small, and then they, they'll start ramping that up into, you know, possible 
uh, murder to see how far that person is willing to go. But in order for them to pass that final grade, so to speak, for the for Mr. Big, the crime boss, they have to be willing, uh, they have to be totally honest, and they have to be willing to tell the, the Mr. Big, you know, if there's anything in their past that uh, this crime family needs to know about. So, uh, so this is what they did with, uh, with Mrs. James. Right. They flew her to Montreal, if I, if I remember from your book. They flew her to Montreal yeah. and basically said, you know, introduced her to said fake crime boss. And then she spills. She basically admits to killing Gladys. Yes, absolutely. They had been working, you know, uh, for the better part of a year. And as I said that, you know, they, they first introduced her to a woman. They said that she'd won, you know, a day at the spa. And as she's being driven to the spa in the in the limousine, you know, there's another woman there that she starts chatting with. And this woman becomes her new best friend. And this woman, you know, introduces her to this crime family. So as I mentioned, the, the, um, the stakes just kind of get higher and higher until um, they flew her, as you said, they flew her to Montreal and because uh, it was time for her to meet Mr. Big. Uh, in a hotel room. And of course, when this happens, the hotel room is, you know, there's cameras and, and audio everywhere. So they're capturing everything. Um, and then put to the test, she she readily admitted uh, that she had killed Gladys and she, and she had no regrets whatsoever. She, she, she was very cold, very cold. And then, so in, I guess it was 19 years later, right? November 2011, mm-hmm. the BC Supreme Court finds Jean Ann James 72 at that point guilty. Yes. And but she never, at least in the court, never admits to it. No, no, she uh, absolutely. And of course, you know, this, as they said, the, this this Mr. Big thing is 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 still quite controversial. I'm not sure how much they're using it anymore these days because there has been. There have been a couple cases I know of in Canada where they did use a Mr. Big Sting. Somebody confessed to a crime, and then ultimately it was discovered that that person was innocent. So, um, because the the argument is, is that person in a position where they are just trying to impress that crime boss, so they will admit to anything, even though they may not be guilty. That was not the case for uh, for Jean Ann James, but no, she never admitted to um, to the crime and said she, you know, she'd been set up and she was felt intimidated, et cetera, et cetera. But um, they found her her guilty. Yeah, and what happened to her? She was, I mean, she was seventy two when she was jailed. What what happened? As far as I know, there she remains <laughs> in prison. Um, I know she's had a few run-ins with uh, with prison authorities. Um, because she was, uh, you know, she was having problems with, um, you know, some other inmates and uh, she was being abusive. Her husband, strangely enough, uh, stuck, stuck by her, her husband and her son. Um, and there was there was problems because when he'd come to visit, visit, she was actually quite abusive to him um, in, in the prison. So um, so she, uh, yeah, as far as I know, she is she's still uh, still behind bars. And, and you know, she'd be a, a much older woman now. Right. What What is it about that case that, that I mean, the case in of itself, I guess it was the way in which she was apprehended. I mean, the case itself is is, is tragic and, of course, amongst and not unique, but it, it was just how it all unfolded over time that seemed to be quite different. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I think I, I was really fascinated. This is the, this is the only story that I've uh, covered uh, to date that had the Mr. Big uh, sting operation. Um, I, you know, I may cover another one in the podcast down the line, but uh, that was really fascinating to me um, because it is such a such an elaborate undertaking um, that is done, um, and as I said, very very expensive. So, uh, so that I was really fascinated by, and also, I mean, this was such a betrayal. Uh, this 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 woman. Uh, I mean, regardless of whether there was a fair, an affair happening or not, I mean, she let she let Gladys into her home. She let Gladys into her bedroom, and right. um, or Jean, yeah, yeah. I mean, mm. it it was. Um, just such an ultimate betrayal of a friendship. With forensic teams still combing the scene for clues, police seem certain of one thing. Davis's murder wasn't a random event. He was selected, like, for motive, I can't comment right. to motive, but he was definitely selected for this crime. Davis was walking to his car when he was shot in the chest. He died alone in the World Wildlife Fund's garage. Robbery appears to be out of the question. Others were seen walking in and out of the garage all day, yet it was Davis who was attacked. Also, police won't say if the 66-year-old millionaire's wallet was found on his body. Police have released pictures taken from a security camera. This person of interest is described as 5'8 with brown hair. Police say he appeared to be in the garage for a while around the time of the shooting. And thus far, he's the only person caught on tape they can't identify. That was Global News' Mike Drolet reporting on the murder in 19, 2007 rather, of Glenn Davis, who was a Toronto multimillionaire, a well-known philanthropist, who had had an incredible story leading up to then. And it's one of the many stories, one of the 12 covered in uh, the book by Catherine Fogarty, her new book called Someone You Know. That will give you a hint as to who was responsible for the murder. But it is a story that begins in many ways. He was adopted. He inherited uh, a vast fortune and a company from his father, went on to run it. And then he was involved in an Air Canada disaster in 1983 that you may remember. It happened, uh, the plane filled with smoke. I believe it landed in Cincinnati. It was the same... Uh, disaster that that killed folk singer Stan Rogers. Davis was on that plane. And when he emerged from that, he decided to devote his time to good causes, specifically the World Wildlife Federation Canada's Endangered Species Campaign between 89 and 2000. Uh, It saw the creation of more than 1,000 new nature reserves, parks, and wilderness areas, doubling the amount of protected lands and waters in Canada. And he was the driving force behind that. But behind it all, there was stuff happening. And it's part one of the 12 stories told in Catherine's book. Uh, Catherine, tell me about, I remember the Glenn Davis story. But again, it is one of those ultimate betrayal stories. And it's because I think his story was so fascinating. The life he had led was so fascinating. Such an unknown character, really, but such an important one. Yes, absolutely. Um, as you said, he was the adopted son of, of a multi-millionaire, uh, N- Nelson Morgan Davis. And um, he, as a child, I mean, he lived uh, a, a life of pri- privilege. He was driven to school in Rolls Royces. They lived in one of the, you know, the biggest homes in, in Toronto. Um, and uh, he, but when he got older, he, you know, he wasn't interested in any of that. He was, he was, yeah, just a quiet, uh, unassuming man that 
walked around in a, in a chilly hat and, uh, you know, went to the Leafs games and ate hot dogs. And his, his favorite, his favorite meal was from Swiss chalet. I mean, yeah, he, he, he wasn't interested in, in, in the wealth at all. He and his wife, uh, lived a very, very quiet life. They had no children of their own, um, which ultimately led to him having, you know, a, a very strong relationship, uh, with, with one of his godsons. Right. And you mentioned that uh, he did sort of go about, he moved into the family business and took it over and ran it very mm-hmm. well. But there was that that chapter in his life, that 1983 Air Canada mm-hmm. incident that we remember because it did claim the life of Canadian folk singer Stan Rogers. He was on that plane. I don't think I ever know, knew that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I mean, I was really surprised when when I I read that. Uh, I you know I had I had learned about um, Stan Rogers, but I didn't know anything about the the actual plane crash. Crash. So it was really interesting um, because it was um, again a tragic event where uh, you know I think somebody was maybe smoking in, in the bathroom. It was back when people could still do that on planes and a fire erupted in, in one of the toilets on the plane. Uh, they had to make an emergency landing in Cincinnati, as you mentioned, and 23 people uh, did not make it off that plane, including Stan Rogers. Um, so, uh, so and that, and the other interesting thing about that was how it changed, you know, when we're on, on planes right now and when the, you know, the, uh, the flight attendants show us the, the, the uh, the lights down the the, right. the alleyway that 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 was one of the the um, the safety measures that they implemented after that crash and of course uh, you know smoke detectors in washrooms um, and and then certainly you know banning smoking altogether on airplanes right. I mean it's hard to imagine that people could could smoke on airplanes oh I'm, I'm old then, enough just yeah. to have touched the tail end yeah. of that but yeah it, what was remarkable about it too is what a change it, it had I mean I think Glenn Davis was always someone who really enjoyed the outdoors but the idea that he yeah. suddenly really devoted himself and the family's fortune to these good causes and that perhaps more than anyone else in the latter part of the 20th century was responsible for a lot of the land protection we see or the, a lot of the environment wildlife protection we see right across this country he put his stamp on it Yes, he did. I mean, as, as you mentioned, he donated millions and millions of dollars to World Wildlife Foundation and various um, environmental causes. Um, but he, again, he was a very quiet, unassuming man. He didn't want, he didn't want and or need the accolades um, about that. So that's why few of us um, ever heard of this man, uh, you know, other than people who worked in those, those environmental um, and nature um you know, causes, they certainly knew of him because he was one of their, their biggest uh, benefactors. But, um, you know, most of us would have never, never heard of him until, you know, sadly, his, uh, his murder. Right. Elizabeth May is someone who knew him well. The Green Party yes. leader was, was uh, you know, yes. she, she's spoken of him, of course. And, and what happened to him? I mean, this is, you, you mentioned it already. He had a very close relationship with one of his godsons, mm-hmm. someone he really mentored and supported. Tell me a bit about Gordon, Gordon Marshall Ross. Yeah, so the... Or Marshall Ross, rather. Yes. Yeah, Marshall Ross. So Marshall Ross was, um, so Glenn's uh, uncle, Marshall Ross, who came... Um, to Toronto with his brother and they created this, you know, huge conglomerate of companies and became multimillionaires. His, his name was Marshall and he had two daughters. Uh, I actually did another story and podcast about uh, one of his daughters was kidnapped 
in in the 1960s. So that was a whole other story that uh, happened to this family. And the interesting thing about this family was, again, they were multimillionaires, but um, they did not want, they were very, very private. They did not want the notoriety of that. So the crimes that ended up being committed, uh, the kidnapping of of Mary uh, Davis Nels, and then uh, what happened with Glenn, both, you know, were, were intimate um, uh, crimes because, uh, as I said, they were a very, very private family. Um, so one of the daughters um, of Marshall, she had, uh, she had this son that was also named Marshall. Uh, and because Glenn and his wife didn't have any children, um, they kind of took young Marshall on, you know, under, under their wing. And, uh, and he was very, very close to Glenn and they would, you know, when Glenn would go off on these different sort of nature, um, uh, holidays and hikes, he would take young Marshall with him. Um, so when Marshall got older, a little older in his, in his mid twenties, um, he decided that he wanted to open a, like a construction, uh, home renovation business in Toronto. So Glenn, um, loaned him two and a half million dollars to start his own company. Uh, and then, you know, things. Yeah. And Glenn, as, as, as you pointed out, Glenn was not someone who believed that debts, he wasn't going to write off this debt, right? He expected uh, a certain level of responsibility, even in his young godson. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, Glenn, uh, Glenn had a, a certain work ethic. I mean, you know, when he was a young man, he was, he went to you know the University of Western, uh, and 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 you know he he taught for a little while. He really had no intentions of taking over this this company of his dad, this multi million dollar company. But when his dad died unexpectedly, um, he, he you know he ended up taking it over. But again, he uh, so he managed it. He managed it very well. Um, but uh, because he had a certain work ethic, so as much as that, as much as he was happy to loan his godson this money, yes, he, you know, he expected um, it to, you know, to eventually be uh, repaid, and he wanted to see, you know, what was what was taking place and happening with that money. Of, of course, it was a lot of money um, because he wasn't seeing he wasn't seeing his his godson actually working that often i mean he was off right. on holidays with his family he purchased a, a you know a very expensive house in toronto himself so I, I, after a few years i think glenn got a little curious as to uh what marshall was actually doing uh, with with his company and, and with the money well, it's been great to have Catherine Fogarty with us this hour. Her book is called Someone You Know on a Little More True Crime, on a Little More Conversation. We've been talking about some of the cases, some of the 12 stories that she covers uh, in this book. Many, All of them involve people who, victims who knew their murderers, people who were very close. Perhaps in some senses, there was no greater betrayal. There were many betrayals in this book, but one of the greatest betrayals is the story we're talking about right now, uh, the murder in 2007 of Toronto multimillionaire and philanthropist Glenn Davis, uh, who had been gone done a great work for the uh, Endangered Spaces campaign, the World Wildlife Federation in Canada's campaign, um, and you know, was, was essentially killed uh, by someone he trusted, someone he had mentored, someone he had taken care of for years, his godson, Marshall Ross. Uh, Catherine, when this, there's there's an attack back in 2005, two years before the murder, where he's jumped in the parking lot and beaten up very badly. There was a bit of a sort of out of the ordinary warning sign in advance. And, and we get the idea that this was all connected uh, when finally this the murder takes place. 
Uh, yes, it was it was definitely connected, but um, you know, uh, Glenn Glenn just sort of you know brushed it off, thinking it was a random attack. Uh, again, because he was such a quiet, unassuming man, he he would have never even probably thought that you know it would be targeted towards him. Um, friends and his wife, I think, did say like you know maybe you need to get a you know security. And again, he just brushed off saying, you know, that that's silly. So yeah, he was attacked, um, you know, with a by a guy wielding a baseball bat as he as he left his office uh, one night in Toronto in uh, in around 2005, um, right. and and suffered you know some, some some serious injuries because of that. But but again, he just you know he he carried on like like Glenn always did, uh, you know, put that chilly hat back on and and went about his business, um, and then. You know, just like a year, year and a half later, uh, he was he was murdered. So, and it was, um, how did it how did it come to be that I gather this was a murder for hire? Is that right? Yes. Um, so, you know what what it came out as, as a murder for hire. His his godson uh, Marshall Ross, um, not wanting to well, knowing that Glenn was starting to ask questions about his business and the money that. Uh, he had loaned him, um, and uh, Marshall Ross was was actually further and further in debt. Um, not only did he not have that money to give back to his, he called him his uncle, his, his godfather slash uncle, um, but he was he was quite heavily in debt. So he thought that if he got rid of of Glenn, that his debt would be wiped uh, wiped free. And also, you know, behind behind this um, this motive was also sort of the simmering uh, issue within this in this entire family, uh, which was the fact that Glenn was adopted, and there were other family members, um, his his uh, his uncle's family, who were not happy that he had been given the company to run. They didn't believe it should have gone to him because he was adopted. So there was these, these sort of long simmering resentments within this family. And that was, that was also at play um, with Marshall Ross because he thought he should be running the company, not, not, uh, not Glenn. Right. And eventually, like in all these cases, someone talks, right? Someone tells police that he knows something and then it all unravels, mm-hmm. then it all unravels. And then there's a, someone has gone off to Cuba and there's sort of a gang of people. Yes. But Marshall Ross yes. is brought to justice. Yes. Yeah, so Marshall Ross, he, he owned this, you know, home renovation company that he didn't really work at. Um, but he, you know, he was able to... Um, you know, talk some some guys that worked in the roofing industry uh, into, you know, this murder for hire plot. And the first one was that baseball attack. And then, you know, a little while later, uh, you know, after um, Glenn was killed, this petty criminal was picked up um, and uh, in, tr- in trying to get out of, uh, you know, what the police had caught him on. He said, you know what, I can give you you know, I'll make you a deal. I've got this other information. And it turned out that this guy had been one of the original, you know, uh, guys hired. And he had been the guy that, you know, had attacked Glenn with the baseball bat. So, yes, it all ended up coming out. And then they, you know, they had to do some undercover work, recording Marshall Davis when he was meeting with these guys. Because they had images of these men. Glenn was murdered in an underground parking lot uh, on Eglinton Avenue. In Toronto, and they had video of these men. So, 
They tracked it down. Oh. And he's in, he remains in jail. I realize his name was back in the news not that long ago involving something else that I think he was acquitted of, but he remains in jail to this day. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, he, he finally, like, you know, in his sentencing, he finally admitted that, that yes, he had, um, you know, uh, organized this murder for hire. Um, and, but then when he went to jail, the, the company, um, Glenn Davis's company, were still out millions of dollars. So they sued uh, Marshall Ross and his, and his wife. And the only asset that Marshall Ross had was his home in North Toronto. So he didn't want his wife and children to have to leave their home. So he decided he was going to try to get four other people murdered to, again, try to wipe out that debt. And one of the people he wanted murder, murdered was Glenn Davis's 84-year-old widow. Right. His aunt. His aunt, yeah. right? It was, uh, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. when you look at all these stories together, and I looked through all of them. They were all, there's lots of other ones we could have talked about as well. But what do you think unites mm-hmm. all these stories? What it is, what is it that, what is the tie that binds here? Because it feels like greed is one of them, but betrayal, mm-hmm. the betrayal in these, and sometimes the cruelty, the cruelty that comes with love and hate when it's that intimate, mm-hmm. is, it just jumps off the page in your book. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I, you know, I mentioned uh, in, in my introduction, you know, when we talk about motive, uh, you know, I said, that, you know, it was the four L's, love, lust, loathing, and loot. Um, you know, it really boils down to, to those four motives in many of these intimate, uh, you know, um, murders. Um, so that is, that is what, you know, uh, creates these, um, I guess, volatile uh, situations for some people. And... Sadly, many of these people had no idea that they were, you know, living with or friends with or married to the very person that was going to end their lives. And that's why they're, they're so incredibly tragic. And as, as I also mentioned, for the victim's families, I mean, it, you, you can't imagine losing somebody to a violent crime, but losing somebody to a violent crime and then knowing the person who committed that crime, who could be, again, another, another of your family members or, you know, your, your favorite son-in-law that you, that's been in your family for 20 years. How devastating is that for the, for the families that are left behind when uh, an intimate, um, this, these intimate murders uh, occur? Well, Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. Over the past few weeks, I've been struggling to try to unsubscribe from a streaming app that I use to watch sports, and it doesn't show any of the sports that I want to see over the summer, so I thought, you know what, I'll just cancel it. I don't need it. Good luck. Good luck. It took me about a nanosecond to sign up for it, and it's taken me weeks to try to figure out how to get rid of it, and I still haven't managed to figure it out. You know, and I think that's pretty universal. There's nothing easier to do than to subscribe to something online, whether it be a magazine, a newspaper, a streaming service, whatever. And unsubscribing is a completely different story, a myriad of challenges that you have to try and get through. You can't find where to do it. It's hidden. Well, 
you know, for example, I'll just give you one example because this popped up in an article I was reading. Uh, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission recently filed a complaint stating that for years, for years, Amazon had, quote, knowingly duped consumers into signing up for Prime subscriptions and then complicated their attempts to cancel. According to the same article, there are internal documents uh, that Amazon had a code name for this drawn-out process of canceling Prime known as Iliad. That is, as the complaint points out, it alludes to the ancient Greek epic about the long and arduous Trojan War. In other words, it is an epic journey to try to unsubscribe from these things. You know, Amazon is by no means the norm, the exception. They're the norm. Uh, and these are referred to as dark patterns, such as one's called the Roach Motel, kind of like my Hotel California, the Roach Motel, which is one that specifically describes cases where online service providers make it easy to get in, but hard to leave. Um, so what do you do about it? How do you recognize where they are? Because they are, they are somewhere. There have to be rules about this stuff, right? Well, my next guest has done some research on this and has some advice. Dominic Kelly is a doctoral candidate at, in information and media studies at Western University. Dominic, thank you. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. This is one of those topics that I'm sure everybody, I mean, everybody in Canada, I was, I was yelling at my computer a week ago because I couldn't find how to unsubscribe from a service that I didn't need anymore. Uh, what, uh, how did you set about looking into this? I mean, it's such a broad topic. So quite a few years ago, I was trying to close several old online accounts that I didn't use anymore. And as I was doing this, I realized that a lot of these sites made it much harder to delete my account than it needed to be. <laughs> so for example, some sites required me to request account deletion by emailing the site administrators instead of just you know, providing a delete account button in their user interface. And then eventually I found out that my frustration and difficulties in deleting my accounts were driven at least in part, due to dark patterns. And this is the term used to describe design tactics that try to get you to make choices that benefit online companies. As opposed to the light patterns that enable you to, to join with a click, right? I mean, the, 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 it, what it, it's the contrast that's so jarring because it's so easy to sign up. Exactly, exactly. Often sites, you know, make it extremely easy to sign up, just a couple of clicks maybe, but then to get out can be such an arduous and long process. Right. So how did you set about trying to figure out what was going on here? Because I gather, I mean, you know, there are many different tactics that are used, but what did you do to try to figure out what was going on out there? So um, a colleague, Dr. Victoria Rubin, and I conducted a study examining the account deletion procedures for 25 popular social media sites to see what design tactics these sites use to deter people from deleting their accounts. Um, you know, we came across a range of strategies. One site just provided no option for account deletion whatsoever. Does it exist? That, yeah, you could, yeah, you could never leave, right? Exactly. And it stated that um, requests for account deletion would be ignored by the site's administrators. <laughs> it sounds highly it sounds highly unethical, if not illegal, but we'll talk about that after. And so that was sort of the like the the obstruction, right? Like really the obstruction. What? Yeah, so that's like complete obstruction. And then temporary obstruction, you know, as we define it in our study, is when these sites increase the effort required of users, such as by having to chat to a company representative in real time or 
having to, um, you know, respond to an email sent by the company to confirm your choice to leave that sort of thing, really just creating extra work. Right. Make, mm-hmm. make it, making you pay for it, making you pay to leave. Is yeah. another <laughs> you pointed out another one too, which is the confusion one, which is sort of having you, I gather, having you sort of dance around the website, trying to figure out where where to do this it's not that it doesn't exist or not not that they make it incredibly difficult they just make it very hard to find exactly so we call that obfuscation and um, we basically define it as confusing or misleading the users so for instance making the button to start the account deletion process hard to locate or giving the button an unusual name so it isn't immediately obvious that that it's what you're looking for yeah, and then there's the the one that I that you encounter the most often because I gather of, of of in that bag of tricks it's probably the least the least unethical one is is just to discourage you from doing it right? Yeah, yeah, we call this inducements to reconsider, and these are the more you know transparent attempts to convince the user to reconsider their decision to leave. So um, this often took the form of emotional appeals like. It would be a shame to see you go or sad faces or a large red warning label. Sometimes the user was given a financial incentive, like a free trial of a normally paid for feature or, you know, other reasons to reconsider their choice. Like the site might say that if you're receiving too many notifications, here's a way to reduce the number of notifications you receive. Or if you're concerned about privacy, here's a link to our privacy settings. So Mm-hmm. Right. Simply try to figure out what, what, what's wrong, right? And, and how to either, whether it's a financial thing or whether you're uncomfortable or you just don't like it, trying to figure out how they can make it better on the fly. Yeah. Trying to predict the reasons or reason why you, you've chosen to leave and then counteract it, you know, by giving these kind of alternative options. Now, you looked at these 25. How, how commonplace is it? Do, does every single company in every single industry do this in some way, shape or form to prevent you, make it easy to join and hard to leave? Yeah, well, of the 25 sites, social media sites that we looked at, all of them did use at least one dark pattern. Um, There was an average of 2.4 dark patterns per site, and five of the 25 used five or more dark patterns in the account deletion process to deter you from leaving five that that's mm-hmm. a lot of that's a lot of dark arts going on dominic kelly is a doctoral candidate in information and media studies at western university she and a professor professor of hers have done some research um on a really interesting topic that i think we could all associate with which is being able to sign up easily for an online subscription for instance and making it and the company making it very very hard for you to leave very very hard for you to get out of it in some ways and making it hard to find on the website all kinds of things they throw up essentially blocking you from making a rational consumer choice uh so dominic when you, when you looked at this are there tricks are there ways to navigate this in a way that doesn't make it so frustrating yeah so through our research we did discover some ways that people can you know more easily get out of unwanted subscriptions or unwanted accounts And one approach is for people to learn about common types of dark patterns. So if the button to start the account deletion process isn't in an obvious place, like the account or privacy settings, it might be hidden in the help section or the FAQs. 
I think people should also pause and just take their time before clicking buttons in a compilation or subscription cancellation procedures. And this is because sometimes buttons that allow you to move forward toward deletion or cancellation are small and faint, while buttons to leave the process are very bright and attention grabbing. So especially if you're in a hurry, the bright button can be easy to accidentally click. <laughs> right. So is that like, like snakes and ladders? Like you're climbing and all of a sudden you're back, back where you started from? You're trying to figure out what happened? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Like sometimes, you know, the button to leave the process will be in a position or just be really bright. So you, your attention automatically goes to it and you kind of click it by accident and then, you know, it's like you have to start over again. <laughs> right. So, so, so in other words, take your time, right? It may have taken you 30 seconds to sign up, but it might obviously take you longer to get out of it. And so take your time and be, and sort of be, be, be alive to what you're doing. Exactly. Um, and I think people should also consider that sites might use a non-obvious term to describe a compilation or subscription cancellation. So instead of delete account or cancel account, for example, they might use change account status. Change account status. Oh, so change account status. So I suppose you don't, yeah, because they, they're all using terms that sort of <laughs> discourage you from finding them. So change account status. Okay. So there, there are different terms they use as well. Right, right. And it can be confusing because, you know, the term isn't what you would immediately associate with getting out of your account. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Any other? I mean, it all begs the question. I don't know if you looked into this or not. How? What are the rules? Are there any rules? So the Federal Trade Commission or FTC filed a complaint against Amazon for tricking consumers into signing up for prime subscriptions and then complicating their attempts to cancel in June. So the FTC alleges that Amazon violated the Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act in part because of its failure to provide a simple cancellation mechanism. And actually last year, Amazon agreed to simplify its prime cancellation process for users in the EU to comply with EU rules on consumer protection. So in some jurisdictions, rules prohibiting these kinds of practices do exist, but it's a matter of you know, regulatory bodies taking action and targeting companies that engage in these practices. Right. So for the mean, in the meantime, buyer beware, really, right? Is there a way before you sign up for something that you can figure out how hard it is to get out of it afterwards? I suppose that's difficult because they don't, you're never exposed to that section uh, of, of the product until you're actually a subscriber. Yeah, I'm not sure really. There is a website called Just Delete Me, which compiles direct links to the pages where you can begin the accountation process for many online services. And I'm pretty sure that they also state how difficult it is <laughs> to find, you know, the button to begin a compilation or um, just to, to delete the account altogether. So that might be something worth looking into. Just delete me. Yeah, because it's so easy to sign up. What did you learn going through all this then? What was what did you walk away with? I mean, you walked in clearly. It started from a personal experience as you're trying to delete old accounts and uh, old stuff. And what did you walk away with now uh, having learned? Well, you know, I learned that these tactics are very common. They also vary quite a bit. So a site, you know, might be using a combination of confusing you and um, placing sort of obstruction roadblocks in your path to a compilation 
or, you know, using emotional appeals. So it isn't necessarily one thing either. You know, ultimately in this research, we hope to raise awareness of these tactics so that, first of all, people are able to familiarize themselves with common types of dark patterns and more easily get out of unwanted subscriptions or accounts. But we also wanted to, you know, identify and document these tactics so that regulators like the FTC will consider to scrutinize these practices and the companies that use them. Right. I, I, should you complain? I, I suppose you could write a complaint. I don't know where we would go. But you could, if you're on the website, because it's usually easy to find the feedback section. That's always easy. Uh, I suppose you could complain about it getting, you know, being too hard to get out of, uh, to unsubscribe. I, I don't know. I don't know where that would land. <laughs> Probably right beside your request to unsubscribe. Uh, Dominic, thanks so much for your work on this. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.